so I hear you're from Canada. Yeah. I How's know. it going, eh? <laughs> Do you want a donut? <laughs> I thought all they had up in Canada were uh, lumberjacks and curlers. <laughs> Is there running water up there? <laughs> Where's your tube, eh? <laughs> New dude beauty. All right. All right, that was for you, Brian. <laughs> those those I am Canadian commercials were like the heart of our national identity for like the longest time. It was like all we had to cling to to differentiate ourselves from Americans. That's that's pretty much what Canadian nationalism is. It's anti-Americanism out of a sense of like inferiority and it, it manifests its way uh, through through beer commercials and things like that. I'm gonna. I gotta be honest. I I have to know what like what is curling. Like every curling. every four years, the Olympics come around, and I see right. these people out on the ice with brooms, and I'm like, what are they doing? What are these it's, people doing? It's one of our national pastimes. I don't actually understand how the how the game works at all. Um, I think it's one of those sports that uh, we are the undisputed best at. But it's because it's one of those leftover sports that nobody really wants to do. And so Canadians <laughs> just sort of pick it up. And we're like, yes, we can I, I be like, the best at this thing. I just discovered it like in the last Winter Olympics. I'm like, what are these people doing? I don't even know. Most of those, because uh, the U.S. team, I don't, I've, did we win the gold last time around? I don't know. I, but no I know most of the U.S. team last time around was from like a few hours away from me. So. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, you know what it really is? The, it's bocce, bocce on ice, like bocce balls. So, right. so for any <laughs> Italians out there, if you play bocce balls. But um, yeah, we're looking to replace our um, uh, Kennedy Hall with like our, our new token Canadian. So we figured we'd reach out to you. And uh, <laughs> we have uh, we got a, a couple. We have a voicemail we're going to play, and then we're going to read. Um, I think we have two new iTunes reviews real quick before we get into the show. So. Rob, you want to play the voice? Uh, why don't we read the iTunes while I upload the... All right, uh, all right we'll do that. All right, so all right, so what we do is we tell people, go on iTunes, leave us a review, trash us, make fun of us, just make sure you leave five stars because that, you know, as long as iTunes sees five stars, it puts you up in the algorithm. So uh, Wing of the Church, if the church is not a museum for saints but a hospital for sinners, Anthony and Rob should be admitted to the psych wing. Now, if you'll excuse me, my husband has to take me to pick up my car from the local Amish collision shop. Five stars. Uh, misspelled podcast title. This show probably meant to be titled Avoiding Babble On. So, like, babble. Oh, I hate puns. As in, that Italian guy babbles on like he just snorted a line and decided to go on a one-hour stream of consciousness, or Eeyore seems not to understand how to change a podcast intro and babbles on for 20 minutes at the opening of every episode. All kidding aside... Yeah, you're Eeyore. All kidding aside, I'd rather get to a colonoscopy... Get a colonoscopy from a doctor wearing gloves made of sandpaper (laughs) and no anesthesia than listen to these two. These have taken an even weirder turn now that Eeyore claims he will co-sleep with his kids when they come home from college for spring break. And then the last one, Pony Up Boys. If you want to listen to Tony Soprano after decades of smoking cigarettes where he rants about how much he hates women and the Amish, this is the show for you. I don't know how much about the I don't know much about the other guy other than he's really excited and in, in the most unexcited voice possible to hear Tony talk. Other than the first two minutes, you will want to skip through. He only speaks in half-second increments before Anthony cuts him off. Don't worry, though. 
they've been able to bring on some Catholic celebrities that will go on for sometimes two minutes before Anthony gives his two cents. The show has hundreds of episodes and a ton of guests that all come on to talk about various deep concepts of Catholicism that will likely bore you. Thankfully, Tony always brings it home and derails the yawn fest about the Catholic tradition to talk about the apocalypse and the Amish. So glad I found this show. In all seriousness, love the show. Keep it up, boys. Hopefully your cheap viewers will pony up one of these days so Tony can move to Tennessee and Rob can afford an energy drink. Five stars. That was quite long, that one. <laughs> so, yeah, so they, we, we like when people make fun of us. We like when they trash us. We try not to take ourselves too seriously. And Rob and I had a fight about co-sleeping a couple of months ago, a couple of weeks ago. So there's a lot of co-sleeping references in there. And then I think we have a voicemail about co-sleeping, right? Um, yeah, still working on getting that up. All right, forget it. Uh, Timothy Leroy is going to be upset. We didn't play. All right, so Brian, I've been watching you for years. Um, when did you actually start your channel? I think around 2016. It was right around when Trump was when the election was was happening that Trump first got elected. So, because I've watched over the years, like you always stayed away from controversial stuff. Like you really did. You really just discussed faith, and especially back in twenty sixteen, there was Morris Latitsky had come out, but like we were like we were still like, all right, you know, everything's kind of okay in the church. It wasn't too hectic yet. We all had like a feeling of uneasiness, but it's like all right we're, we're still in it and you really just discuss catholicism and i i think it stayed that way until recently right like pretty recently you decided to jump into some of these hotter topics yeah i i, I think that's fair uh, probably the first time i addressed any sort of scandal um or i don't know salacious stories within the church was was right after the McCarrick scandal first broke i think that that was that was a moment for a lot of people to take an inventory of where they were at with their faith and their relationship with the church, especially uh, the global church and and the way that we we relate to it through especially media. Um, and that I would say was was a moment in which I, I I was processing that and I was processing it out loud on my channel a little bit. I, I think I published at least a couple of videos on that at the time, and I noticed that there was a huge appetite for those videos um, relative to what I normally published. I think they went fairly viral, and I remember at the time, you know, there's there's always a temptation with with doing anything in the public eye. You're it's it's hard not to be self conscious, right? Whether it means there's there's opportunities that you want to access or you just want to avoid looking stupid or you become conscientious about certain things that you otherwise wouldn't be. Right. Um, and so there's lots of temptations that come along with that. And I would say at the time um, I was strongly tempted to make my channel about that, publish more content on that. Right. And, and I noticed that other people were, and, and it was leading to certain effects on their channels and their, their, their renown within the church and, and certainly on, on social media. And, um, my own personal discernment was that I didn't want to do that. That's not really why I had started my channel. I'm not a journalist. Um, I'm not really an expert on it. What I do consider myself to be is sort of a voice for the, uh, let's say, the average Catholic who is more fluent in in church teaching um, and uh, and perhaps current events within the church. Um, so a lot of what you see on my channel is just me working through ideas and, and things that I've been studying and reading about. And sometimes that relates to the news within the church as well. And so I don't want to be church news all the time, but every now and then, if I get the sense that people are really struggling with something, um, then I'll try to address it from that perspective and, and, and try to explain 
how I'm working through it, how I'm reconciling myself to the tradition of the church and um, those who are in leadership in the church. And so, you know, lately there's just been a lot to talk about. And so yeah. it, it seems like it was just, it was unavoidable for me. I wasn't really trying to, to shift deliberately. Um, and it, it's ironic because I did one video where I just felt the need to update um, some of my past statements about Pope Francis's pontificate spe specifically. Um, and so I did a video about that. And then I said, I think it was in that video where I said something like, you know, I'm not going to say much more about it. I'm going to try and leave it at this and move on and get back to what I was, I'm, I'm used to talking about. And then successively, there was just one thing after another where I was like, okay, maybe I do need to talk about this because people are freaking out on Twitter or in my comments or even just in the relationships that I have one-on-one -on -one with people where, you know, the conversations we were having um, made me feel like it was warranted. And so... So yeah, that, we, that's been a have, theme lately. We have like the same because Robin, like Rob and I always talk like as we were coming into like starting to have more deeper because we started off doing like trivia. Like that was mm. how the channel started. We were doing like Catholic trivia. And then we interviewed somebody, then we, you know, and we and the same thing. Like you see, if you address a church topic, you get a little more track traction on the video and stuff. Sure. And um so like yeah, if, if a huge story hits, we'll address it. But we try to I, like we really have just been focusing on having conversations and conversations with people that you wouldn't normally see going on the same chat because I've, I've been seeing the church break off into like tribes, like into segments. So you get mm -hmm. you know the trads are in one corner, then you kind of get like the mainstream, uh, you know, uh, how would you describe like the typical lighthouse Catholic media guys are in another corner, then. You have, mm. you know, the Steubenville guys are over there. And I, I've been trying to have conversations with guys from every group because these are all people that affected my faith. Like when I mm. started coming into the church or like taking my faith seriously. And when I would see guys talking about certain people, I'd be like, why are you cutting this person out of the conversation? Because they disagree with you on one minor topic. So you actually did a video on that the other day, right? Like on the, on like not remaining part of the body of Christ, like breaking off into these segments, I think, right? I might have. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have to think of, yeah, what, what, what specifically I was talking about, but um, that's, I, I talked a bit about this on, on Matt's channel as well, because both Matt and I, uh, this is Matt Frad, by the way, yeah, yeah, yeah. that wasn't obvious for people. Um, as, as we mentioned in the interview, we both knew each other before we had any sort of kind of public presence and we used to talk about authors and apologists and, and some of the media that was available at the time. And um, we would trade links back and forth and, and we would have these long conversations about apologetics. And it just sort of felt like everybody was on the same team at that point. Right. Yeah. It's sort of like if you're out there doing missionary work or apologetic work or journalistic work and you're Catholic and you're serious about your faith, it's like, well, yeah, we're, we're all on the same team. Um, and it felt like it was just easy to to all identify with each other. And and if there was any sort of dispute, um, it seemed minor. I remember there was this one time uh, at, at a conference here where I live, Mark Shea came to talk and I sat at his booth and talked with him for a long time, just feeling like, hey, we're both a couple of guys who really care about the Catholic Church. And um, now that was pre-Trump. Yes. Yeah. This is quite a while ago. It had to be um, pre-Trump because I, I, yeah. I don't mean to cut you off, but. I don't think it's all Francis. Oh, yeah, no, no, that's probably true. I think I think it's the political conversation going on too. But because if it, 
part of the like people don't realize the crisis is not just in the i mean they do realize obviously but th there's mm. something about the this papacy while the political upheaval is going on in the culture as as well that the two of them combined you could see that um people that you would have a, a totally catholic conversation with 10 years ago because you were both Catholic and like you're saying, like we're just on the same team, all of a sudden politics mm -hmm. drove a wedge into that conversation. And you saw people like Mark Shea and Dawn Eden actually making politics so much part because they, they would assume certain Catholics were MAGA Catholics. And so it was just, it really right. got hectic in 2016, I think. Yeah. And, and I, I think he has tagged me a couple of times or responded to me and referred to me as a mega Catholic on, on Twitter. I'm like, I'm not even American. It's Canadian. You know, like I've, yeah. I, I'm, there's this sense that there's this mega cult and I can understand the frustration with that, seeing how the primaries are going right now. It's like, you know, if I, I, I do consider myself a, a conservative and I'm, I'm, reticent to use a term like that because it gets associated with certain other things like like classical liberalism or, or just capitalism or free economics or something like that and and that's not what i mean by conservative and so uh but nonetheless i mean you you have the two-party system in the states and so you get grouped into one or the other and as someone who would be part of uh or more sympathetic to the republican party I mean, there's there there were some decent candidates out there, some people who could really articulate um, that position well. I would say here in Canada, Pierre Polyev, who is the leader of the opposition right now, who is likely going to be the next prime minister, he's someone who I don't, I definitely don't agree with anything. He's more libertarian, but at least he can really articulate his position. He can assert something rather than just say, "Oh, let's lower taxes," right? Sort of these these bumper sticker slogans. He's actually got a point to make, and he can he can assert whatever it is that most people mean by a conservatism, right? And Trump, I mean, it's so dangerous to talk about him because He's such a like, people are guy. obsessed, right? Like yeah. they just <laughs> are completely in love with the guy. But I mean, for anybody who has more, uh, more of an intellectual sympathy, they want, they want leaders who, um, who can, who can articulate a point and a philosophy and a creed. I, he, the, the man just doesn't seem to measure up at all. I mean, he certainly has a certain kind of genius and a certain kind of talent, but he has some very uh, explicit weaknesses as well that are, should be alarming to anybody who calls himself a conservative or, you know, in our case, a traditional Catholic. Trump's not a conservative. That's the thing. It's the weirdest thing. But well, that's, yeah, again, that's the problem with the label. And we saw this, we saw this discussed uh, at length, uh, ad nauseum on Twitter recently when uh, there was some sort of a calendar that came out. I don't know if you guys saw that. It was like a conservative dad's bikini calendar or something. Yeah, like that, yeah, where, yeah, I saw yeah. that, yeah. And so everybody was like, well, this isn't conservative. And why would a conservative dad have a bikini calendar? And other people were like, well, you, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of thought. And it's like, okay, well, that's not conservatism. That's Lockean liberalism. Yeah. And this is, 100%. this is the other problem, right? Like, we use words like liberal to describe a leftist. And at a certain time, you know, during the Enlightenment, liberalism was a left, a leftist movement. But today, most people associate like freedom, like con like American kind of constitutionalism with conservatism. And that's not mm -hmm. really what conservatism no. is. But conservative conservatism has become associated with so many different things that it's really it's it's become undefined and, and so I don't know, so, so diluted in Because today, leftism isn't even really liberal because it's not about no. 
individual liberty. It's about no. author- authoritarianism. Absolutely, yeah. But it's I, more I like a biggest, Hobbesian kind of modernism. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest thing people are missing in the in the political conversation, especially when you hear people say things like, this is the most important election of our lives. If we don't get this person elected, this is going to happen. It's like people mm. are missing the bigger picture here. You have the country divided down the middle 50-50, no matter who gets in, right? So even if you get your candidate... Which in, even that alone is pretty suspicious, don't you think? I don't want to yeah, interrupt, it's, but like yeah, it's it constantly is. 50-50. Like when did that start happening? That's pretty it's weird. Very weird, but even Seems still... engineered. So it does, but you have you get your guy in. You're not changing the culture because you got your guy in for a four or eight year period. You're just not doing yeah. it. You're you're only going to change the culture if you change hearts and minds. And the truth mm-hmm. of the matter is, the only way you're going to change hearts and minds is by actually living like so. Kind of the thing you were talking with Matt about about forming these small Catholic communities and mm-hmm. doing what the early church did, which was just living a life that is so countercultural that when people see it, they're attracted to it and it makes them want what you have. Right. So you, yeah. you were talking to um, Kevin, the non-trad the other day, I, I saw your show with them. Right. And mm-hmm. this is, this is a guy who left the church. He was raised in a very, he was raised in like an FSSP parish that his parents founded. And mm-hmm. he, uh, he was raised as a traditional Catholic and now he's left the faith. And he's he kind of uh, presents himself as this uh, beacon of warning to trads that if, you know, your kids can still leave the faith and these are some of the warning signs. But I, mm-hmm. I when I heard you talking to him, I kind of wanted to say, like, you were raised in this um, in this. I don't even know what you said, like j- just this ethos, right? This Catholic ethos, this traditional Catholic ethos. You left the faith. But you're still only talking about Catholicism because that ethos had such an effect on your life that even mm. though you don't practice the Catholic faith anymore, you're living your life as a as an agnostic. You're still in our chat all the time. You're still in Brian's chat all the time. You still want to have these conversations with Catholics for some reason because that is the culture that you were raised in. So there is something to living in a bubble like that. I think so. And and whether it's traditional or not, you see this in, in other dimensions of the public sphere as well. Like, I mean, uh, prominent politicians like like Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden, right, or, or, or the Kennedy family uh, going back a few decades. It's like um, these are people who obviously don't have a very strong supernatural faith, right, and a strong devotion yeah. to to the Lord and his teachings. Um, you know, if, if the if the measure of our love for Christ is how seriously we take his teachings, then it seems like they don't really love Jesus, right? But there's still this inescapable sense of their Catholic identity, almost like it's a badge of honor. Um, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily characterize Kevin that way, but it it does seem for people who who were raised in in that culture, and this is the power of culture, I would say too, because it's something that you marinate in, and you just can't you can't really escape it, even if you reject the creed um but it seems like in in the case of someone like kevin yeah it's really hard to just walk away from and it sounds like if, if you hear him tell his story um it really was a crisis for him like he really uh he he went to priests he went to friends he went to family he was really trying to hold on to this this thing that was so precious to him and, and whatever for whatever reason that it was and i think that that's still going on for him and that's why he's he's participating in all of these channels and all these conversations he he seems to me i mean he's still young he's in his 20s i'm pretty sure um probably he seems to me like 
similar to I mean, I, I was I have eight siblings. I was raised Catholic and I had a period where I left the faith. Now, I never didn't believe in God, but I lived as though God didn't exist. I just left the church. I left the sacraments. I left it all. And I just I was Adam hiding in the garden, pretending God wasn't there. Just God, don't find me. Like, don't look for me. And I lived like that because I kind of wanted to, and I'm not saying Kevin's doing this, but I wanted to just kind of live my life without the the, the the burden of, you know, because I had this view of God as just this Santa Claus figure who saw everything I did when I was sleeping and every little thing right. I did. And I wanted to just <clears throat> break free of that. But when you break free of that, you wind up finding it's, I mean, especially especially if you um, actually do believe the faith and then leave it like sin never has that same uh, attraction because you know the, the consequences of it. But so I left for a period of time and then wound up coming back in. Kevin to me seems like the kind of guy that probably, I mean, I, I hope it doesn't take something tragic in his life, but something dramatic might happen in his life that may call him back because faith is not a matter of proof. It's really a disposition of the heart. It's, it's mm -hmm. like if, if a person like um, Russell Brand put out that video, did you see that Russell Brand clip where he's no. talking about what? Uh, so Russell Brand puts out a clip talking about, he's like, why I wear a cross. And he's reading, uh, he's reading his Bible and he's a little open to Christianity. And he's like, and, and talking about um, reading one of, one of Billy Graham's uh, like protégés books. And he's like, you know, I'm, I'm just opening myself up to this. Now, if a person reads scripture with an open heart, there's something's going to happen there. It's when they, when you so. read something with a closed heart, I don't think something will happen. No. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because we're talking about how Catholicism, it haunts you wherever you go. If, if, if you have, uh, if you have been a part of the church in any way, and I would say that Christianity in general, if we want to just sort of broaden the lens of it is something that um, haunts our civilization in the same way, right? Um, like you're either quite hostile towards it or you start to be a little bit receptive to it at the same time, right? And that's that's how we tend to be in terms of like personal relationships, right? Like if somebody has had a, a really profound impact on your life, it's hard to just kind of walk away in an indifferent way. Often you'll, you'll depart company um, with strong feelings one way or the other, right? Mm. And, and I think that that's the way that people treat Christianity. It's either like, a, an open rebellion against it and a hostility that we can't really just set aside or it's something where, you know, conversion starts to take place and the, and the seeds of faith are, are, are kind of planted there. What year Sorry, did you actually... somebody knocking on my door here? Really <laughs> yeah, quickly. go ahead. Dude, you gotta... <laughs> um, Anthony, I do have that uh, Russell Brand clip pulled up if you wanted to go. Oh, you actually there. have it? Yeah, well, yeah. maybe we'll wait for him. We'll play it just because it's, yep. it's interesting to see the way he presents it and, when when somebody actually talks about having their heart open to something, like I remember um, when I had my conversion, it was that like I went to uh, Easter service at a Lutheran church with my wife, and I went to an Easter service with my wife at a Lutheran church, and I came home like asking. I, so I was just telling Rob when when I when my conversion was. My wife was Lutheran. I married a Lutheran girl. Um, and I go to a Lutheran service with her on Easter. And afterward, we we come home and I was sitting out on my front porch and I was just like, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Like, I really went through this process. Like, you know, maybe he wasn't really dead. I don't know. And I go in my house and I'm like, God, if you're I was I said, God, if you're real and you prove yourself to me, I'll change my life. So like I had that open disposition of my heart. 
And I go inside and I watched a documentary on the Shroud of Turin. And by mm. the end of that documentary, I was on fire for God. It was the like just this little disposition of my heart changed. And I was like, okay, God, if you're real, I'll submit, you know. Um, but Rob has the clip of Russell Brand that we could play real quick because it's a short clip. So the reason I wear a cross is because Christianity and in particular the figure of Christ are, it seems to me, inevitably becoming more important as I become more familiar with suffering, purpose, self, and not self. Reading the Bible a lot more, and as I've told you before, I'm reading Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life. When I grew up, Christianity seemed like it was either really irrelevant and old fashioned and sort of dusty and sort of incense and sort of, <laughs> or they tried to modernize it and it seems just like, right, okay, we're going to talk about Jesus. And like both of those routes seem like, well, I don't know if there's anything for me. And I suppose it takes a certain amount of adulthood and it might be different for all of us. For me, it seems that it's taken quite a lot to recognize that you need, I need a personal relationship with God. It occurred to me that if instead of always talking to myself inwardly, I could replace one of those voices with an indwelling God. It says in Galatians, it is our job to die so that as Christ died on the cross, he might be reborn in us. I'm very interested to hear what you think, because for me, my heart is open. Let me know what you think. Okay, so right there, right now, now listen, everybody don't get your hopes up. He's sitting on a yoga mat with a man bun, <laughs> you know, like, I'm just saying, but a person that has that disposition, like, God will work wonders in a person's life like that. And a person like him, conversion is a big deal. Yeah, I, I think it's 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 a beautiful thing to witness. And uh, I think we all have some experience of this. I mean, Anthony, you were just relaying your own, but it's, it's how the church describes the dynamics of faith, how faith actually works in us, right? God will initiate, he will invite, he will give us a sort of grace and then we can accept it or we can reject it. And and this happens often throughout our lives, right? Um, perhaps every day for all we know. Um, and when we turn to him in openness, that's when that conversion will start to take shape and that, that faith will actually start to take root. Um, Jesus said that he came as good news for the poor, right? And I think that that's been one of the challenges for an obnoxiously prosperous civilization is that we don't feel like we're the poor. We feel, especially for the, for those of us, like when we're younger, we just feel invincible and prosperous. And I don't need good news. My life yeah. is good news. I'm the protagonist of this story. Right. Uh, but suddenly when you get older, you start to realize your vulnerabilities. You've made quite a few mistakes that, that are starting to accumulate, especially the more responsibility you take on in life. The consequences for your mistakes become quite a bit more significant than like, oh, I failed a quiz in grade 10 bio or something like that. It's like, no, now I've really hurt somebody in a significant way. Right. And, and that's something I'm going to have to carry with me for the rest of my life. And that's hard to do without some sort of consolation, some sort of something you can place some hope in the future in, right? And and I think that yoga and other religions and spirituality and humanism and whatever else we might turn to, they start to really uh, become inadequate um, as as that need for hope um, starts to, to grow in strength, right? And and I think that it's Christianity ultimately ends up becoming the only thing that can really answer that need. 
Well, we were, we were, I mean, you were in the same thread the other day and I was trying to explain to people, maybe we'll have to play that Valde clip in a minute so I could get to that, but it's all right. So actually let me back up a minute. So what year did you come into the church? Uh, 20, 2004. So, so Oh four, so you it, come it'll in. be 20 years this, this Easter. Wow. 20. How old are you? I'm not telling. <laughs> I'm, I'm 41. Oh, I am too. You're born 82. Right? Yep. Yeah, me too. Um, all right. So you come in in Oh four. That's like right around when I, when I come into it's wild. Um, mm. so now, I, mine was a reversion. Like, I grew up Catholic, kind of left, and I come in in 04, and I'm like, I'm reading Scott Hahn books, and I'm I'm coming, and I'm hearing about this amazing Catholic faith, and I'm and he's talking about the mass and reading the Lamb's Supper, and I'm and I'm going mm. to mass, and I'm like struggling to see how heaven meets earth at the Nova Zorro, and I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm like this is this is where heaven meets earth, and I ha- and I'm and I'm really trying to understand like how the faith I'm learning about is the, the faith I'm experiencing, but I was, there was a disconnect there. It was, it was just a disconnect. Like what I was learning about and what is what I was experiencing was seemed different. And then it was, it was around 2016 or 2017 that I discovered, discovered the traditional Latin mass. And it was like this light bulb went off and clicked for me. And I was like, Oh, that's, that's how the saints could have a devotion to the liturgy, like have a devotion to the mass. Mm. That's why I was, that's kind of what I was learning about. Did you have a similar experience? When was your first Latin mass? How did you come about going to your first one? And what was your first reaction to going your first time? Uh, well, so I, let me, let me go back to my own experience of, of being introduced to the liturgy. So similarly to you, I mean, Scott Hahn and Catholic answers and, um, that whole menagerie of of, of thought and, and and writings, that all that was heavily influential on me as I was considering the the potential between Protestantism and Catholicism, which is what it came down to for me. Um, and simultaneously, I was also going to different churches on on Sundays and trying to just get a sense of where where I found my fit and and also reading scripture. Like that was the thing I was I was mostly consistently reading and. And trying to get a sense of like, does this portray like that that community and 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 of course the teachings of Jesus? And there was a lot in like evangelical churches that I immediately identified with because there was young adult ministries and there mm. was music that I could more relate to because it was something more like what I had just been conditioned to like in popular industrial music, right? Um, whereas that at mass, uh it was it was sort of like boomer breaking bread variety yeah. music, right? And music was a big thing for me. Like uh, I was a musician growing up. I played in bands and things like, like that. So I was really sensitive to it. Um, but I had also been recruited to be the electric guitarist for the Life Teen Mass, like even before I had become Catholic. Wow. And so we were able to really shape our liturgical experience through that, right? And so I didn't have a very good sense of what like the larger landscape of Catholicism really looked like, because we were just kind of in our own little bubble, making it as relevant as we possibly could and as enjoyable to our own particular tastes as we possibly could. And I was really influenced by this notion that um, Catholic teaching, so the creed remains 
consistent and infallible and coherent, but disciplines can change, right? That was sort of yeah. part of my initial formation. So I was like, okay, so whatever happens in terms of the expression in the form of the faith is completely up for grabs as long as the creed remains consistent. And the longer I went on, eventually, you know, because we started having kids, I had to back away from doing music ministry. And nobody ever replaced my my group. We were kind of like a destination uh, mass at the time because we were like, I don't want to toot my own horn, but we were like a really good yeah. praise and worship group, right? And so people came from far and wide and there was standing room only. But then when we all moved on, nobody really replaced us and it just became your standard boomer mass, right? And well, you want to grow out of it, right? Like you're no longer a teen. So you're, yep. I mean, you were still, you were like, uh, so 04, you know, we're, we're like 22, 20, 26. Yeah. No. 20, 24, 22, 22, 22. <laughs> like, yeah. right. You're like 22. See, you know what it is? Rob loved the life teen masses when he was oh. younger. They were just yeah. so, so much. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, you grow out of it, right? So you're coming into 22 and you are young and you're connecting with the teens there because you're young. Yeah. Like, but as you're starting to have your own kids, you kind of grow out of that and you, and you are probably looking for something different. So what, what happens after that? So I end up in the pew for quite a long time and I find my frustration just growing because not only is it stylistically and culturally bland and irrelevant, but it's, it's just not done well, right? When, mm. I, when we were part of this life team group in mass, we would practice like for hours a week. Like we would rehearse the, the songs that we were going to do. We would write music for our responsorial Psalms. Like we, we took this very, very seriously and we were there every Sunday. Um, and then to sort of see this, this apathy and indifference towards the liturgy expressed by the people who are supposed to be leading it after we had to step back was was really frustrating to watch, yeah. right? Because it felt like we had built this thing up and and now someone could take it over and inherit it, but just nobody cared. Nobody cared at all. Um, and having gone from quite a, a deep immersion into evangelical Christianity, like Pentecostalism. Like I even got to know uh, a pastor of one of the mega churches and we, we became friends for a time and seeing what was going on at his church and just thinking, Hey, this is well done. It's relevant. If that matters for whatever, to whatever degree that that matters. And what we're doing over here, it's not relevant and it's not well done and nobody seems to care. And how can we call ourselves disciples? How can we say that we, we loved Jesus if, if, Every week when he presents himself, when he comes onto the stage, we just haven't bothered to, to do anything yeah. in honor of that moment, right? Um, so that was sort of the first, I think, frustration for me. But as time went on, I started to just get exposed to the tradition in, in small measures and think, wow, this is really, this isn't just appealing. It isn't just relevant. It's something else. It's something truly transcendently beautiful, um, so what our does this first start as like you, you first see like an ad orientum novus ordo or something or no 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 like so it was it was mostly music was has always been kind of my gateway to to exposure to beauty I would say visually as well like I'm a very visual person I'm a graphic designer by trade right and I went into that because of just my artistic inclinations but probably the first the first exposure to some measure of the tradition because you know. I live in Western Canada, which is just a cultural wasteland, yeah. right? Like we we didn't we didn't start to develop um, uh, economically until after the war, right? So people didn't really settle here until the late 1800s, and they didn't really start to develop the the infrastructure until 
the early 1900s, we were, we were a developing country. And then it yeah. wasn't until like after the wars where we were like, okay, we have some, some money to do something to start building up like cities. But by then modernism had set in. And so yeah. we have no heritage architecture, no, no artistic um, cultural heritage or anything like that. Um, so it's, you just don't get exposed to it where I live. And so when we got married on our honeymoon, um, so this is in 2007, we uh, we went to Europe uh, and just sort of toured around Western Europe. And the first place we landed in was London. And we we just, we, we landed and we went just walking around because we knew we'd fall asleep if we just stayed in the hotel room, right? Because we were so jet lagged. And I figured, you know, everything's going to be Anglican churches here. And, and I don't know what that looks like. I'd been to Eastern Europe before and you can just walk into all these beautiful cathedrals and stuff. And so we turned the corner and we see this, obviously a big church. And I'm like, Oh, let's, let's go check it out. And I figured it was an Anglican church. Uh, but the longer we, we were walking around in it, I realized, I think this might be a Catholic church. And it turned out to be Westminster cathedral, mm. which is the first big Catholic cathedral that they built after Catholicism was restored there uh, in, in Great Britain. And so we checked mass times, went and grabbed lunch, came back. And it was just like a Wednesday afternoon. So it was just like a weekday mass. And we're like, we sit down and I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of it, but they designed it to be like this, this kind of like Byzantine revival style church. So it's just, it's incredibly beautiful and grand and like nothing I had ever been to. And we're sitting there uh, in our seats and they have this world-class organ team there. Right. And he's just warming up. He's just kind of improvising on the organ. And like, I was a metal head growing up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the things I liked about metal was like the virtuosity, right. I didn't like just sort of thrash metal. I liked like metal. Yeah, there you go. I liked Metallica because I wanted to listen to like three minute long guitar solos and instruments yeah. right, as a guitarist. <laughs> and so I'm sitting there listening to this organist just improv- improvise and fiddle. And I'm like, this is the most intense thing I've ever heard anybody do ever on an instrument. Like it's just, it, 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 it puts to shame everything that I thought was like impressive, sophisticated heavy metal music. Right. And he's just playing around. He's just waiting for the mass to start. And so we're like falling asleep, trying to stay awake through this. And they had like one cantor who was, who was this woman who just had this angelically beautiful voice. Um, She sang like the ordinary. So um, I don't, there wouldn't have been a glory because it was a weekday mass, but she sang like, um, you know, the Agnes day and like the mm. response to Psalm and things like that. And um, I was just dumbstruck by how beautiful it was. Right. And I don't even remember if it was chant, but it was something more approximating chant than, you know, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't to. gather us in. <laughs> was, exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and it was just so beautiful. And I remember thinking like, this is, if you could take our faith, the creed that I've fallen in love with and and manifest it in audible form this is mm-hmm. what it would sound like right yeah. and i've had different experiences of that there's another really amazing clip i don't know rob how how capable you are of bringing stuff up on the fly but there was a clip early on in uh pope francis's pontificate when he traveled to oh i want to say georgia and i think there was some sort of like the the early uh rumblings of conflict between russia and sort of like its former satellite states right Mm. and so they had invaded georgia a little bit or just kind of thrown their weight around a little bit there and uh or it might have been in syria even i don't remember but it was in it it was approximate to to russia and some of the things that they had been trying to do and pope francis visited there and there was this group that sang the our father to him in aramaic and uh and it was in this old um 
just very beautiful uh, kind of primitive Eastern uh, looking church. And, and I remember sitting there just listening to the, our father and thinking again, this is the musification of our faith, which as it yeah. turns out, I haven't actually found this quote, but somebody relate to me that that's, that's, that that's a quote by Paul Benedict. That he has this concept of the musification of our faith, like how it becomes incarnated for us yeah. in a sort of a sacramental way. Right. Like that's what the incarnational faith is about. It's taking the invisible, something like beauty, this transcendental, and then making it, manifesting it, embodying it for us. Especially in audible form like that. Like, yeah, okay, so Rob yeah. is good. Rob's got it. Yeah, good job, Rob. <laughs> Sounds like it could be the, um, like the, like the music for the passion almost. Yeah, or just like what you would imagine plain song would have sounded like in the temple, right? It's like it, even even at our um, our Latin mass that we go to, <clears throat> when you have the choir above, and I compare that to like the because my dad was in the music ministry growing up. My dad played the guitar for the music ministry, but I compare yeah. what I grew up with compared to it. Really does sound like you have angels above you singing from the choir loft, and it's just there's something about chant that really does raise and elevate your heart to heaven. You know, it's like lift up your hearts. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It you know. sounds like prayer. It's what prayer should sound like, mm -hmm. right? Um, from the from a very young age, I've always been kind of obsessed with like the fixtures of culture and 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 largely for selfish, selfish and vain reasons, right? Like I wanted to be cool, right? And so I wanted to identify myself based on the music I listened to or the way that the clothes that I wore, the way that I presented myself, or the way that I spoke, or 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 whatever, right? And as fashions would shift and change over time, the older I got, the more I just felt like this is so vacuous, right? Oh, mm -hmm. we're now doing skinny jeans. Like, right, the 80s have come back again and, and, and it's not baggy jeans or it's not boot cut anymore, just whatever. And thinking like, okay, so I just arbitrarily have to go and completely dispose of my entire wardrobe and go buy something new. For what? What is the purpose of all of this? Isn't there some sort of standard that we're all grasping at that is the real thing that transcends these sort Dude, of. Dude, you should have been fashion, a preacher. Right? You got me excited right now. <laughs> well, and simultaneously reading Chesterton talking about like the timelessness of tradition and the the vacuous slavery of fashions and trends, yeah. and I just sort of thought like, yeah, yes, where is this sort of this thing that transcends all ages, right? And then going to Europe again, it's like, okay, I'm sitting in Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, and like, I don't. This isn't this isn't a preference, whatever this is yeah. doing to me, this isn't because like I have a preference for this. It's not a, it's not a taste. It's, it's not like, because this is cool now, but in 20 years, it's not going to be cool. It's like, no, this, 
this has stood for centuries. Yeah, it's timeless. And, and everybody, so what is it about that? And, and the longer I asked those kinds of questions, the more I read and the more I studied, the more I got exposed to clips like that one that Rob just showed, the more I realized like there's, it's beauty itself, right? That's what we're all yeah. grasping at. But the modern age has taught us to think, has taught us to substitute and, and frankly, right. explicitly reject beauty, right? Like that's what modernism uh, in its various incarnations does is it rejects explicitly beauty in favor of novelty and, and the other sort of vacuous things that it, we, we think are. It are, rejects are, 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 that, that beauty is objective. Yeah, yeah, that it exists, period, right? Yep. That there is such a thing as beauty itself. But, you know, our cultural heritage proves that there is, right? Like, if you can have people separated by space and time from generation after generation after generation who can be dumbstruck with awe when they stand in front of Cologne Cathedral or, or Notre Dame or, or wherever, Chartres, and say, wow, yeah, right? Like, this isn't just neat. It's not novel. It's not just different. It's like, no, this is profoundly true. Something about this speaks to every heart, right? And that's what Thomas talks about when he says that beauty is what, and goodness is what everyone desires, right? It sort of speaks to every heart in this, this profound way, and it's undeniable. And thank God for our, our ancestors that were able to actually tap into that and, and, <clears throat> and breathe life into it through stone and wood and metal. And song, of course, kids. as well. I took my kids to, so we, after Sunday mass last Sunday, um, we went into the city and I took into, cause I live in New York. So we went into, into Manhattan. We went to the Met. So in the Met, they have um, an exhibit showing art from the 1300s to the 1800s. So it's all medieval art and it's all mm. Catholic, all Byzantine. It is phenomenal. Yeah. It's like awestruck. I was looking at some of this stuff. It was so amazing. And then we left there and I was like, we're stopping by St. Vincent Ferrer on the way home. And they were annoyed. Yeah. yeah those are actually, these are some of the pictures of from, from that I took while I was there. Yeah. And um, so we left there and we go to St. Vincent Ferrer, which is a lot of people go to St. Patrick's cathedral when they go to New York, but that's a tourist trap. It, there's a mm. million people there. You can barely see anything. St. Vincent Ferrer is on fifth Ave, and nobody's there. And we walked in and my children were just like, why doesn't every church look like this? It's like, right. they're like, right. I would love to go to mass here every week. Can we please come here and go to mass? So I'm going to have to take them to mass there just because like you're saying, like beauty really does elevate your heart and it, and it, and it just lifts you up to heaven. It's crazy. Yeah. It's an encounter with God when, when, when it's done, when it's adhered to in a way uh, or expressed in a way by those who who are actually doing it prayerfully and seeking to communicate and and manifest the incarnation for 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 successive generations. So when do you actually find your first mass now, your first traditional mass? Yeah. Yeah, so um Yeah, it 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 happens simultaneously. So what we got a new pastor at our parish the, the same parish that I was growing in frustration with. I went from being someone who would come away from Sunday mass, just being filled up and edified and ready to take on the coming week to like every week, just sort of leaving being angry and being angry at myself for being angry. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And then we get a new pastor who comes in and um, he, he processes in, he's wearing jeans and sandals and bare feet under his vestments 
And in his homily, he's introducing himself and he describes himself as some kind of a cross between a Franciscan and a Jesuit. But he's a secular priest. He's a diocesan priest, which already raises the question, well, if that's where you felt your vocation was, why didn't you join? A yeah, right. why, why did you become a diocesan priest? So it's just sort of a weird thing to say, I remember thinking. But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm never impressed with homilies for the most part. And I don't mean to say that to, to denounce anybody. It's just like the... You know, it's, it's hard to be a good speaker. Yeah, so, you know, I, I credit people for that. Um, so I didn't think much of the homily. But afterwards, you know, we're all meeting our new pastor. So there's kind of a lineup to, to introduce ourselves to him. And so we're just waiting in line to talk to him. And as we get closer and closer, the person in front of us was spending a lot of time talking with him. And, and he was explaining that he had just come from a parish in a city about two hours uh, south of us. So in, in Alberta, the province I live in, there's two major metropolitan areas. There's Edmonton, which is where I live. And then three hours south, there's Calgary, Alberta. And in between, there's this very sort of like rural kind of hillbilly town called Red Deer. And I say that with, with great affection. I, I love yeah. Red Deer and I love the people that, are, that I meet from Red Deer. But my pastor was explaining that he had just come from Red Deer and he was so grateful to be out of that white trash atmosphere. And he, I don't remember, he used language like that. I don't remember if that was the exact phrasing, but he said it in a very offensive, condescending way. Yeah. And I was just like, are you serious? Like, whatever your particular political persuasions might be, okay, but you were their spiritual father. How yeah. can you describe them in that, those terms? Like, that was so, so discouraging for me. And so... Why we didn't even stay to, to to greet him. We just sort of I was like, okay, let's just go. And so we left and and continued to attend our parish. But you know, material heresy in the homilies, if not formal. Um, and his liturgical sensibilities were starting to express themselves all so we were already in a very kind of modern parish, but he did everything he could to strip the sanctuary. Like there was a, a back altar. Um, where the tabernacle had been moved by our last pastor, who was this very good traditional Polish priest who was trying to make incremental reforms in our parish. But um, this new par- uh, this new pastor just removed all the candles off of that back altar. He went and dug out some old, like horrible 90s um, liturgical fixtures, like candle holders that had like bubble letters, like joy and gospel and <laughs> meal, like written on them. And, and, and like these, pr- the presiders and celebrants chairs that were just like, just really, really ugly and had thrown away these other ones that had obviously been donated by like a, a, a very uh, well-intentioned parishioner. Right. And I just remember like watching all of this go on and thinking like, yeah, of course, felt banners. Yeah. The worst kind thinking like, ah, this is, this is going to be a test for me. But as, as time went on, I, I also realized like our last pastor had been there for about eight years. And so now my daughter, my oldest daughter is about 12 at this point, And I mean, she's a little bit younger. She was maybe 10. And I, I'm thinking like, okay, eight years this is going to be the defining formative years mm-hmm. of her. And this is going to be her exposure to Catholicism. I can't do this. Yeah, that, that was this. my, what you were in was my experience growing up and I left. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's, that's my biggest yeah, fear. And for why my kids wouldn't too. you, right? Like, it's yeah. just so bland. It's so embarrassing to be a part <laughs> of when you're it's a kid nothing that the world identify with something, right? Yeah. It's nothing that the world's not giving you in a better form. So yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a second-rate version of of worldliness, right? Yeah. 
So at that point, um, we knew some friends that had just recently moved to town and they were going to the Latin mass a little bit. And so I was, that was my first that I had heard about the Latin mass where I lived. And so I was like, I said to my wife, you know, I think, um, I think we got to try something here. I think we got to see if, see if the Latin mass or maybe go to the cathedral where we had some other friends that were going there. And so we went to the Latin mass for the first time and I had been to like a French mass before and, and, and masses in other languages, especially when we were in Europe. And, I figured, okay, the Latin mass is going to be the same thing just in Latin, right? Mm -hmm. Because my sense of the tradition of Christianity, even in Protestant circles, was that like the liturgical tradition was so deeply ingrained that it's it's pretty easily recognizable. Like I had gone to Anglican um, services uh, when with my, my, my wife's family, they were Anglican. And I was like, wow, it's pretty much exactly the same as the Novus Ordo, um, as I was getting exposed to it as a non-Catholic. Right? That was, that was my wife's Lutheran. She was like Missouri Synod Lutheran. And in some ways yeah. they were more reverent than the Catholics yeah, in yeah. the way they received communion. Like they would yeah, receive same with the Anglican church. Exactly. It, it's like yeah. They were more reverent to, to communion than, than the Catholic church. Yeah. Yeah. So I figured going to the Latin mass, it's going to be easily recognizable. It's going to be the same kind of thing. And so we get there and um, I'm immediately aware that I have no idea what's going on. And I've been in that position, you know, to be a convert coming into Catholicism from the outside, I've gone through the process of being the guy who's like, I hope nobody notices. I have no idea yeah. <laughs> of what's going on here. Right. And, and here I was again as but the worst part is like, I'm now a recognizable Catholic. At this yeah. point, right? So there's people who are like, Hey, there's Brian Holdsworth. Oh, yeah. church. He doesn't know what he's doing. What a goof. Right. And so I'm, I'm really cognizant of this fact and, and I'm really self-conscious and, and, and really frustrated by this fact. I didn't anticipate this. I'm feeling disenchanted with just my affiliation as a Catholic because I don't know where I am. And now I'm, I'm lost in the liturgy. How is this possible? Mm -hmm. But then there was this moment, it was a sung mass, and it was during the canon where he's chanting. And, and this is our former pastor, shout out to Father Father Boda, who he's Italian. Um, he's from Italy. And so he's got an Italian accent. And so when he chants Latin, it really sounds like the real thing. And he's got this great booming voice, right? And so there was a moment where I was able to forget myself, forget the fact that I was sort of lost. And I, I could just sort of close my eyes. And I swear I was transported to like the ancient faith, whatever yeah. that means. I, I could, for for all I knew, I could have been standing in a Roman basilica in the ancient world yeah. listening to the same liturgy. And I was just like, I was transported. And I just remember thinking like, nothing else matters. Everything just melted away. The outside world, my thoughts and my worries, my my struggles with my affiliation in the church, nothing mattered in that moment. And it was it was shortly lived. It happened for, I don't, I don't even know, 30 seconds, let's say, right? And then I was back to like, oh, I don't know what's going on. I don't know how to. I don't even know how to receive communion. What's going yeah. on here, right? And so we stumbled our way through it, and and then some people came and introduced themselves because they recognized me, and they're like, hey, welcome to our church. And you know, there was a handful of younger families there at the time. Like you could, you could count them all, and you could recognize. Like it was, it wasn't very well attended. Yeah. And so I, I came away. I don't know, feeling a little bit confused, if not frustrated. How did and then your we're wife driving, react? How did, how yeah, did your so wife yeah. react to the first one? I want to hear it's that. It's a good question. Right, you I'm so, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. You tell the whole thing. No, that was my hear. next. This is my next point because we're driving home. Um, and uh, I'm sort of reluctant to ask her what she thought because this was really my my doing that we, we had gone to this. And so I kind of turn over to her and I'm just like, so what did you think of that? Right. And and I don't even know what I thought about it at, the, at that point. But um, she 
in whatever way she could process it, expressed how I was feeling with the, the sense of frustration and confusion. But then she goes, but there was this moment where <laughs> I just felt like nothing else. Like I was transported to like the heavenly liturgy and it was short lived. And I was like, I had that moment too. It, it sounds right? like God actually did this to both of you. <laughs> I think so. I think so. And so the more we talked about it and the more it stuck with us, you like, it was, it's so funny, you know, Protestants criticize us for uh, our vain repetitions, right? But do you ever find yourself like doing the dishes accidentally, like praying, right? Just sort of reciting or chanting, even like like Hail Mary. I sing the Kyrie like all day on Sunday. My kids want to kill me. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> and it's sort of like you know, Saint Paul tells us to pray unceasingly. It's like wow, it's just happening by accident throughout the week. Uh, like little phrases of chants that I had heard at the Latin yeah. Mass were coming back to me, and I was like. Oh, that's just, and I would have a moment again where I was transported. Like I just pause and like be in the presence of God accidentally. That doesn't happen with with like Dan Shooty hymns or or whatever you get at the Novus <laughs> Ordo, right? Like uh, unless it's because it got stuck in your head because it's the My Little Pony theme song. And you're just like, ah, get out of my head, right? Four chords, but it, yeah. Yeah, but it doesn't inspire you to pause and to pray, right? And I was that was happening to me, and I couldn't escape that, and 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 so continually like i was like i was just I, I i wanted to go back right i wanted to go back to like like a movie that you saw once where it was like a, a real kind of brain teaser and and it sort of it, it got you thinking and you couldn't escape it and you're like i gotta go watch that again right yeah. it was sort of like that where i just the first time you saw i was the apprehensive <laughs> yeah yeah i was apprehensive but i wanted to go back and and my wife had the exact same experience so we just did and the more we kept on going back the more it it was just penetrating our souls and 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 kind of opening us up more and more and more. And then the final straw for me was was asking our kids after we'd been going for you know a few like probably out a month, a month to yeah. six it weeks. Four, like it that. takes four in a row, and then you feel at home. It, it does yeah. take four in it a row. Be, like the first four, you're like, what the heck is going on? But after right. four of them, you start to feel at home. And then yeah. to go back to the Novus Ordo feels alien after that, I would say. Yeah. 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 I, oh, I could, yeah, I could describe a lot about what it's like to go back afterwards. It's, it's, uh, it's jarring. jarring. But so after, after going back for like five or six times, so we're driving there and, and I reluctantly say to my kids, I'm like, so guys, we've been going to this Latin mass thing and we haven't talked a lot about it. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, like, what do you think of it? Do you want to go back to our old parish or do you want to keep going to Latin mass? And they like from the back of the 15 seater passenger van, I just see all these arms going up Latin mass. Latin wow. mass. And I was like, <laughs> and I totally didn't expect that yeah. because I wanted nice. to go into Latin mass, but I was afraid they were going to say, you know, we want to go back to see our friends at, at our old parish. Right. And, yeah. and no, they were like, they were totally into it. And I tell this story all, all the time. So I'll, I'll keep this brief for those of you that have heard it. But another moment happened with with my son at the time was our youngest. And he was like two or three years old, maybe. And he was down in the underworld of the pew, right, where he can't see what's going on in the shadows, getting restless. And so I he was making a bunch of noise. And so I picked him up and um, and all of a sudden this like cloud of incense was just floating over us. And I got caught in the in the stained glass windows and he pointed at it and he goes, prayers. And I was like dude you yeah. get it right yeah. <laughs> it's this sense of like how culture embodies the faith that even if you don't rationally or verbally understand it the sensory experience of it is communicated to you in a mm -hmm. way that it just 
is inescapable that a three-year-old just gets it right going to mass is how we embody the faith right it's so um i want to play this clip because everybody everybody mis misunderstood what i was saying in this clip because I, I mixed it in with evolution and stuff but i was trying to get to a point rob i want to play the uvalde guy clip because it has to do with what you're talking about right now in mm -hmm. some strange way because what he's saying is the most horrific thing in the world but it's it, it i want to i want to get into it real quick Many, maybe most legal systems are based on this idea, this belief in human rights. But human rights are just like heaven and like God. It's just a fictional story that we've invented and spread around. It may be a very nice story. It may be a very attractive story. We want to believe it. But it's just a story. It's not a reality. It is not a biological reality. Just as jellyfish and woodpeckers mm. and ostriches have no rights, homo sapiens have no rights also. Take a human, cut him open, look inside, you find their blood and you find the heart and lungs and kidneys, but you don't find there any rights. The only place you find rights is in the fictional stories that humans have invented and spread around. And the same so you can pause it there, Rob, because look, I, I know field. what he's saying sounds horrible. Obviously, what he's missing is that the story we believe is not a fictional story. It is reality. And the, the power of story and narrative is so important. It's why the Christian story comes to us as a story. And the way you live out that story is through the liturgy. You actually participate in the life of Christ at every single mass, but also through the liturgical calendar. So that's why we have these seasons where we start off at Advent and we anticipate the coming of the Savior. And then you go into, uh, you you go into the Lenten season, you know, other than ordinary time, which... People don't <laughs> ordinary time, but or the you know the um so you go through the season where throughout the year we are actually trying to live out the life of Christ, which is why we tell these stories throughout the year so that we can actually embody the faith, which is why you're saying like the, the things that we're doing in the liturgy, it's why the liturgy is so important, is it's how the faith comes alive in our lives. So if you're having a horrible experience at mass, or if it's just some some you know, thing you do just to withhold your obligation because you're Catholic and it's like, well, I have to go to mass on Sunday. If you're not really, because I don't like when we say it's not about what you get out of mass, because in some ways I get a lot out of the traditional mass and, and, and it does move my heart. So a lot of times we as Catholics, when Protestants are saying something about church, we'll be like, well, it's not about what you get out of mass. It's what, it's what you're doing for God and things like that. But you do get something out of a good liturgy that you, that you really you don't get out of a bad one. Yeah, I think so. Um, talking about stories too, uh, reminds me of, um, I'm sure lots of people have heard this story before. Uh, but when I first heard it, I remember being really like thinking it was a really profound insight. Um, and it goes back to um, the story of CS Lewis's conversion because he was a part of, and we've all had experiences of this where we've, we've, 
kind of been adopted into a group or a culture where we're like, wow, these guys are cool. I want to be yeah. like these guys. They're mm -hmm. so like, like maybe an, a group of older uh, like siblings or, or, or whatever, where they'd they let you hang out with them for the night or something You're like, wow, they do such neat things. So there was this, this group called the Inklings, right. And, and it was led by people like J.R.R. Tolkien, where they would read Norse mythology and discuss mm -hmm. it and stuff. And, and Lewis didn't even know how to, to read Norse, but they sort of let him come in and hang out with them. And eventually he got, got the hang of it. And he had an obvious infatuation with, 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 with pagan mythology as well and at one point he said you know isn't it weird that we have such an affection for these stories even though they're not true they're they're just like lies and and tolkien said something like well first of all they're not they're not lies they are true they manifest truth for us um, but it's because there is a, a more important story hiding behind all of the great stories, mm -hmm. which is the story that also actually happened. Right. So so yeah, there's the power of stories that 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 it inspires our affection and even in our intellects, for that matter. But then there's also um, the way that it comes alive for for those of us that are material beings. Right. And we we need to see it. We need to touch it. We need to hear about it. Um, and, and that's what the incarnation does. And that's what Catholicism being really one of it's, it's the only faith that does this, where it, it presents as both matter and form, right? Where it's, it's, it's embodied for our senses and not just our intellects. It's not merely like Gnosticism where we're trying to escape this, this crude matter or where we're trying to escape this ethereal superstitious nonsense in, in the form of atheism. It's both right where there's, there's mm -hmm. these two dimensions of our reality and they, they, they join together in this beautiful symbiosis in, in Christianity. Right. And so, so that's what liturgy does for us. Mm -hmm. And that's why we can't just be indifferent or neglect liturgy. Like a formless faith is not Catholicism. Um, iconoclasm is not the Catholic faith, right? Um, we need those things to inspire our affection and to help us encounter the incarnate God yeah, who, who made absolutely. himself known to us. What's, what's funny is in that surprise by joy, <clears throat> because I just had this, I, what I've been trying to explain to people is the damage that the evolution narrative is causing. And mm. it's, it, it's, it's because it gives a whole bunch of presuppositions and kind of sets you up to believe that you're just this, insignificant thing that just came up out of nowhere and you know or whatever just random random acts of chance and all this and yeah. i've been trying to encourage people to actually embrace the christian creation story more because it's it, and i got in trouble with certain trads because i said that the christian story is like genesis is mythology that doesn't mean it's not true it's it's a myth right. and if you understand what what C.S. Lewis is talking about in Surprised by Joy, he says Christian Christianity is also a myth. It just happens to be a true myth. Like all right. these other stories are myths, and a myth is just something you base your culture on. So if we're now in a culture where they're trying to get rid of the Christian myth, the main Christian myth they want to get rid of is the creation myth. Because your culture mm -hmm. is founded – God, every single culture that has ever existed had a creation myth. Ours is in Genesis. And if you want to get rid of the Christian story, you have to start at the foundation, which is the creation myth. So I've been trying to just talk to people who are so, especially Catholics who are just like, oh, evolution, evolution. It's like, guys, I, kn I know you want to talk about evolution and be okay with the modern world, but I'm just telling you, stop thinking like that. Like embody the Christian story, including the Genesis story. It's the most important narrative to base your life on really understand that that God gave us that story for a reason. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think the more you get exposed, like Tom Holland is a good, a good example of this as somebody who the more exposure, he's, so he's a historian and a writer. We interviewed him. More familiar with him. Oh, you did. Oh, awesome. Oh, okay, I yeah. interviewed so, him after Dominion. Dominion was like, it blew me away. I couldn't stop yeah. talking about it for months. Yeah. So that's a good, that's a good reference for what I'm trying to, 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 to describe it is, is his experience of like, getting exposed to the classical world and then thinking, Oh, this is so cool. This is so neat. And and it's so um, like eclectic, like, Oh, I can be a classicist or I can be like those Roman pagans. And then becoming more familiar when realizing that, Oh, yeah. these guys weren't so good. Right. Like there's that some serious culture is here. nothing like my culture. <laughs> yeah. If, if I want to s- stand up and, and, and announce that I, I reject certain things about Christianity and then say, but I identify with this, like, that's a bit crazy. Um, but the more you get familiar, the more you get immersed in, in classical culture, I, I think the more I find in my own experience of that, it's, it's, it becomes harder and harder for me to embrace this sort of modern post-enlightenment skepticism about mythology in general, as if it's mm-hmm. just stories. Like even something like the Iliad, right? For the longest time, they were like, oh, that's mm-hmm. just, it's like a fiction. And it's like, oh, and then <clears> they, they discovered the ruins of Troy. And then it's sort of like, oh. how about about that right um and and what there's sort of a moment for me when i was reading on the incarnation by saint athanasius i think it was on the incarnation where he talks about like he's 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 exhibiting a kind of proof for the divinity of christ by saying look what's happened since the church since the reign of the church has has begun and and one of the things he he points out is that the demons are all gone Right. And it's sort of like, oh, okay, yeah, primitive people and their superstitions. Right. And, but he's taking for granted that his audience was familiar with a time in which there were just demons everywhere. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, so you think about like what the Iliad portrays. And so, of course, there's a battle between the Spartans and the Trojans, but the gods are also participating in it. Right. They've got yeah. wagers, they're picking their favorite heroes, they're dictating how the events will play out. And it's like they're on the battlefield. And we look at that and we're like, oh, this is Homer just embellishing things. And it's like, no, these maybe. gods were real, and these maybe people they were, really believed yeah. in these gods, and these gods yeah. made demands on these people. There was yeah. never a culture that was atheist ever, right? No, so, yeah. people, like you, you as a modern person could look back and you read Greek myths, and you go, "How do these people believe this nonsense?" Because the gods right. were real. Like right. they're not, they're not God, but the gods were real, and the Bible even talks yeah. about that, right? Like worship no yeah. other gods before me. These gods were very real, and if you go and you see the cults that formed around these gods they were very scary i mean it, it yeah. really it's so crazy that we're even coming up on this because rob gets annoyed when i talk about it but i, the, I don't because i've I read all of, of tom's books we, we started like this show actually started getting interesting when we did a series on the um the danielic mystery in the book of ephesians and what we did was we used tom holland's book to kind of give people uh, to take people into the ancient world to Mm. show them like, look guys, the ancient world is nothing like, like Caesar comes back after slaying a million Gauls and says, look at what I did and holds it up as like, look at what I did and brags Mm -hmm. about it. Now you have to think of modern culture. Modern culture is so uh, Christianized, even though we're post-Christian, that we now, yeah. even when we go to war, we have to like hide the dirty things we do. Like, oh no, no, we didn't hurt the, we didn't hurt every, we saved all the civilians that we could, and we only went because people yeah. are, are so Christianized, they just don't realize it. 
So we took them into the ancient world. We took them to show like some of these cults, like the cult of Sibylle, where the priests would castrate themselves and wear women's clothing and people would bring their children to see it. And it's like, guys, are you paying attention? These things mm. are coming back, right? These gods were very real and people are not recognizing that these gods are coming back. You just don't know that's what they are. These, right. these same practices right. are coming back. You just don't know these are the gods of the of these are the old gods that Christianity. It's really the city of God versus the city of man, right? So when you read mm. Augustine, he's talking about look, the altars of the gods are destroyed, and you're seeing Christianity spread. This is how you know that the Christian story is real. Mm-hmm. Well, if you return to like Athanasius, for me, that was a moment where I paused and I was like, what does he mean? the demons are all gone as if he's just taking it for granted that his yeah. readers would, would know the difference between a time when there were demons just everywhere. And now they're all gone. And, and it's sort of like, well, why are they all gone? First of all, probably because there's a tabernacle in every city corner now, mm-hmm. right? Like they're just, they've been sent out into the wilderness. And then I remember reading um, St. Anthony's biography, but I, by, I think I want to say St. Gregory. Um, in which he goes out to the wilderness. And what does what does he find out in the wilderness? The demons, right? Mm-hmm. What are they doing out in the wilderness? Well, this is, and they even say to him, what are you doing here? This is, you're not supposed to be out here. This is where we are. Like they're they're annoyed yeah. that he's come out to the out there because it's like their last refuge that they have in the world because they've been they've been sent scattered they, to the scattered, scattered to the wind right. because you have tabernacles because of the incarnation. Have, yeah, the incarnation. You have priests waving incense, saying prayers, yeah. and they actually disperse the demons. <laughs> they've from ran the, into from hiding. The yeah. There's a and, reason and, why all the like uh, scary stories, you know, in the that they told happened in the woods deep mm-hmm. in the woods yeah. because that's the only place left to the demons yeah, yeah. yeah so, i'll tell so this that- story too this 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 is you know take this with a grain of salt because I, I can't even cite where i remember reading this but i remember reading about um a story so this would have been in like m- modern day oregon where there was um a missionary who had come there and he was he was doing missionary work with the indigenous people of the area, which is very similar to where I live in some of the stories you'll hear about the missionaries who came here. Um, and they were explaining um, the phenomenon of the Sasquatch, right? Which yeah. was this terrifying creature who would come and snatch their children and like eat them. Right. And was constantly abducting people. And, and so the missionaries were like, okay, so where they're trying to assess, is this like a bear? Is this a natural thing? And they're like, well, ever since you guys arrived, they've, they've, They've just disappeared. We don't know where they went. And so, and so there's been some speculation by like, well, what were those? Those yeah. crazy Sasquatches. Well, now, well, now like, let's take it into where we are now, right? So what you see is, uh, so like in the, in the time of Augustine, what you see is the temples are fading into ruin. And, the, you know, the, these old, the temples of the old gods are falling into ruin. And some of them have become cathedrals and they've been baptized and you cast these gods out. So what's going on now is you're seeing the Christian churches get sold to the secular world and you're seeing they're becoming wedding venues, right? So now that mm. happens and you're giving rise for room for these demons to return. You're seeing, mm. in even in this conversation about liturgy, the liturgy because it's because it's less important to the people and because it's celebrated with less less reverence i really do think that's why you're seeing the like to to think that they're not related that mm-hmm. that the culture really takes a nosedive after the liturgy changes i think that there's a very big really i don't want to say it's all that of course you have a cultural revolution going on at the time and all this stuff but 
there's mm-hmm. something to the the changing of the liturgy and the culture collapsing. If you go back to like the the Arthurian legend, it's weird because you have uh, this time when King Arthur is is uh, accepts Christianity, but you still have those ancient gods still around, right? So like Queen Mab is there and. It's uh, they're losing their power, these gods. And like it's you got to I want to go back and revisit that story because it's such an interesting Mm -hmm. time where Christianity is spreading. But the old gods are still around in some some respect. Yeah. Well, and there were those um, those death knells uh, of like pagan Rome as well with with characters like Julian the Apostate. Right. Mm -hmm. Who was was raised in with Christian sensibilities. And obviously that that marinating effect took root in him. But then he turned back towards paganism and wanted to produce this revival of paganism uh, within the empire. So when he does that, it wouldn't take shape. Not that. But when he does that. It's so funny because when he does that, he he starts telling his priests, you need to care for the poor because the right. Christian, the Christians are doing it. And it's like people yeah. are attracted to it. And he's yelling at the priests of Sibylle, you need you need to start caring for the poor. You need to start caring right. for the poor because he's hoping to attract people by in, introducing this Christian idea of you don't just you know, treat the poor as garbage because that's how they would have at that time. Now, Julian yeah. the Apostate is Constantine's nephew. And he tries to build the temple, the third temple. And every time he goes to do it, the ground quakes and the temple right. collapses. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's so interesting when you really like for anybody that's Tom Holland's book, especially the early chapters before the Reformation, because after the Reformation, I'm like, all right, here we go. Because he has this weird yeah. concept where he thinks Christianity is this like eternal revolution that's going. But those early chapters. So mm-hmm. when I had him on, I said, I said, Tom, you have to tell me how your mind was changed because you can't possibly have read the church fathers. I mean, this guy read the church fathers. He's quote the whole early chapters of him quoting church fathers and right. their meditations mm-hmm. on the cross and the crucifixion. Yeah. Like you can't walk away from that with, without having an impact on you. Like how is your, your view of the Catholic church changed? Cause he grew up as an Anglican thinking the Jesuits were like the most evil cabal in the, in the world, you know? And yeah. no, my modern Jesuits, who knows? But, not be wrong. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but he, he actually told us how his opinion of Catholicism just, just is such drastically different from his upbringing because he encountered how much the Catholics did for the modern, for the Western world. He, you know? he said he even kind of lives according to the liturgical calendar now yeah, because of the discipline it, it brings. Yeah, yeah that's, that's something I don't understand is the people who, I mean, maybe Jordan Peterson would be another kind of person who really grows in sympathy for the faith, but I don't know. There's like this invisible barrier that they can't get through. Uh, like Barry Schwartz, we interviewed him on the Shroud of Turner. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's a good yeah, example. I, I, think, I think Jordan will become Catholic. Um, his mm. wife already has. She's praying the rosary for him every day, right? Mm. I think uh, part of what I think he's doing is I think he's still trying to remain having these conversations. Because whenever he gets in a conversation with somebody who doesn't believe in God, he is like one of the greatest defenders of the existence of God once he right. encounters right. that. But something in him hasn't clicked yet. But you see, every time he talks about Jesus, he tears up. Mm. I've seen four or five interviews where when he talks about Jesus, he weeps. I mean, the, you know, especially when he, uh, when he first came out of his sickness, yeah, 
he had a conversation with Jonathan Peugeot that was just like phenomenal. He just, he was talking about the story of Jesus and he's like, and I probably believe that. And I don't know why it doesn't make sense to me. And he's just crying as he's saying it, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I'm just encounters with any sort of transcendental will do that to some degree, like relaying our own experiences of liturgy and, and, and me going to, or that clip that we showed and, and going to beautiful cathedrals. It's like, there is something moving about it. My dad, who was an atheist at the time, um, they went to Ephesus and went to the shrine where um, where Our Lady and St. John supposedly lived. Mm -hmm. And he said, like, there was something about that place. I, I, I couldn't tell you what it was, but it was it it was so, so moving. Um, there is something about that, that that just speaks to the very heart of our humanity. To whatever Even degree we have Ephesus, where John, where John takes Our Lady. So Artemis Ephesia is the virgin mother goddess. And mm. it's John brings Our Lady, the true virgin mother, there to combat the demoness Artemis Ephesia because she's a false virgin mother. Is there's so much like symbology in all of where like the whole Christian story? Where do you see? Mm. Um, look, every, the, the 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 modern iteration of the Novus Ordo is kind of trapped in that boomer era. It's very like the, the irony of them talking about like being rigid and being backward is they're trapped in a, in a time capsule in the sixties. Yeah. I'm not saying it's only going to be the traditional mass eventually, but there, there has to be something that changes in this, right? Because I, it feels like the young people are escaping to these more traditional parishes and that's, and the, and the, and the, the Novus Ordo seems to be fading out just through age. So you mm -hmm. think, you think we'll see something in our lifetimes of maybe a, a, a restoration yeah, I, I think so. I, I think we're young enough that we'll still see. I, I couldn't say exactly what it will look like, but I don't think it, it can carry on the way that it is. Um, and, you know, we we saw it wasn't a Pew survey. What It was some university had done a survey that came out fairly recently. You guys will know what I'm talking about, where they were comparing um, responses going back to like the 70s from clergy, from priests and newly ordained oh, yeah. and, and sort of the progression, the shift. And so they asked them like two questions. What was, what, what are your political um, sympathies and what are your theological ones? And, and it was like very conservative, very traditional, very liberal, very progressive, whatever. Right. And back in the seventies, the, 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 the dominating force was very liberal, very progressive. Whereas now it's very conservative, um, very traditional um, to the point where, you know, the other side of the spectrum is virtually gone extinct. Right. And so, that can't but have a pretty dramatic effect. Um, simultaneously with the uh, the vocations crisis, the, the clergy vocations crisis, uh, were, there's a gap, right? So there's like the boomer generation, they were still, you know, they lost a lot after after the council, but there's still quite a bit there. And there a lot of them, well, that's virtually all of our bishops, right? And then Gen X, at least in my diocese, there was no vocations from Gen X. There was like two guys that got ordained in that from that generation here. And then like like later Gen X and earlier millennials, there's a few more who start to get ordained and stuff, right? So there's this huge demographic gap, right? And right now is what's the very last of the baby boomers. As soon mm -hmm. as they retire, you're going to get like 40-year-old bishops, 40 and 50-year-old yeah. bishops who are going to be there for a very, very long time, who are going to be very, very traditional in their sensibilities. So um, the effects of that, I, it's it's going to be it's going to be a dramatic shift, but also simultaneously, 
they're also going to inherit this massive institution that they there's not going to be enough of them to to actually yeah. manage. So so that's going to create all kinds of interesting dynamics that uh, I, I could only speculate about what that's going to look like. Do you do you think there's a schism coming in the church? I I don't know. I mean, on the one hand, um, any any bishop who becomes a formal heretic loses his office, right? Um, and like we have that, like yeah, we basically the entire German conference. They're no longer yeah. legitimate bishops. Mm -hmm. uh, based on what they've been promoting. So that is that not a schism, frankly, right? So like, I, my theory is that I think after Francis, we are going to, I think, I think so many people have Francis fatigue. And I think that you're going to get a Pope to the right of him. And I don't know how far right. I, I really don't. I don't know how far right. I don't think you need someone mm -hmm. very far right of him for that schism to materialize, because I think everybody uh, that's, excited about what's going on in the church right now, they assume that um, that trajectory will continue. And if it takes even a slight step back, I think they will revolt. Like you have to realize we're all in the church because we know this is the, the one church that Jesus Christ founded. We're not going anywhere. This is it. We're not leaving the Eucharist. I'm not so sure the other side feels the same way. I think that if you got, even if, I mean, if you got a, a Benedict the 17th in, which is possible. You, if a Cardinal Seurat gets in or something, I really think mm. you will have a material schism, and that's it. And you're going to get mm, the church that yeah. Benedict spoke about in that 1970 radio address, where he said it will be much smaller, but the demands yeah. on the faithful will be much higher. Yeah, I, I think that's that's manifestly coming true. Uh, but how it's going to play out? I mean, there's so many variables at play here that I I yeah. can only speculate. I don't know. But that's a good point. I don't think we can go back to a Benedict, uh, a successor to Benedict at this point. No, like, I know. Too much water has gone under that bridge that it's like, no, that's not. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, he was the I don't appropriate know. pontiff for that time, but we no, something new has to happen at this point. I don't think you can try to sell the hermeneutic of continuity. I don't think you can try to. <laughs> no. I, just, I don't know. I mean, I maybe, so. maybe you can. And I'm, I'm still very sympathetic to it. And in fact, it, it's church teaching that if, if, if something that comes out of the magisterium has the appearance of contradicting the tradition, the deposit of the faith, then you interpret it in the most traditional possible way as yeah. that you can. Right. Um, so, so that's what we ought to do. But um, like Benedict came in as a successor to John Paul II, which had been, you know, this, this calming of the chaos after the council mm -hmm. um, and, and a lot of like really great encyclicals, a lot of great thought, uh, like, the catechism came out, which was just so indispensable. Imagine a time when, um, like like right now, but without the catechism. Like we just, we have nothing that we can appeal to. So people are out there saying, oh, the church teaches this. The church teaches tolerance and inclusivity and diversity. And it's like, I got nothing to say to you. I can, I can appeal to the church fathers. I can appeal to St. Thomas Aquinas. And they can just go, well, that was then, this is now, right? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, the catechism really... was the watershed where it was like, oh, finally, it was it was it was it was manna for the for for people who actually were orthodox and they could say no this is what the church actually teaches right so yeah. a lot of good happened and then benedict sort of came in to kind of keep keep things uh, in check benedict seemed like he was like okay we're done with the council stuff i'm going to change i'm not going to be john paul the 3rd i'm going mm. benedict the 17th it's time it's time to 
we're done with the council. The council's good. Now let's let's look like he wanted to do something different. So like when you when you hear guys like Ralph Martin, uh, who was uh, he was around after the council and he like, you know, all the craziness of the 80s and early, you know, late late 70s, early 80s and the craziness and the liturgy and all that stuff. He's like, you know, John Paul II and Benedict quelled a lot of that stuff and really did tamp it down. And it seems like all the stuff that they were dealing with back then has pop back up again and that's the craziness of it so i think you're right well i mean we'll we'll see what happens only time will tell i guess yeah it's the last gasp of that generation and and it it, it will inevitably be gone but how much damage they cause between now and then and and that's why i say we can't go back to benedict the 16th because he was a successor of something that was already happening and then we've seen something very different take place and it's like you can't just go back to trying to like calm the waters right like you need someone in who can can repair a lot of the the division that is taking place. Oh God, now. please give us somebody. <laughs> yeah. Well, oh, I'm man. I'm kind of fearful of like the pendulum swinging too. Like, I don't I hate labels. I'm a pretty melancholic person. Like, don't label me, man. But I, I for all intents and purposes, I'm I'm a trad now, right? Like yeah. most people would look at me and say I'm a trad, right? Um, but. I, a lot of what I find myself doing in the way I'm uh, affiliating is is sort of like a compromise, right? It's sort of like a Benedict option where we're like, oh, let's just huddle together, right? Because yeah. it's crazy out there, right? Yeah. But not as like a permanent thing. It's like we still have to go back out there and be missionaries and be martyrs if we have to. I don't know. But um, there has to be a way forward in the church. And uh, again, I don't, I don't really know what that looks like, but... Um, I would be afraid of just sort of like the the rad trad pendulum swinging back in. And a lot of people are saying like, we need a Pius the 13th. And it's like, okay, maybe we do. But what you mean by a Pius the 13th kind of scares me a little bit. Like I had posted, <laughs> I had posted the other day about that interview I did with Kevin. And I just said, Hey guys, go check out. Um, I, I did an interview with someone who's a former uh, traditional Catholic and the comments came in from people that were just like, why would I listen to this? A former, a former traditionalist. Like it was, it was a good conversation. Why would you want to listen? Like, and people were saying to me, why would you talk to that guy? And I'm like, what do you mean? Why would I talk to him? Like, this is what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be missionaries. We're supposed to be evangelizing. We're supposed to be, we're supposed to be learning what are their hangups and, and trying to help them and, and, and to be, be salt of the earth. Right. Like we're not just, we're not, we're not isolationists. We're not just going yeah. to. I'd say tradition and, and if there's nothing. one mission I think that I want to do with this channel, it's to to prevent trads from isolating themselves too much, where they yeah. separate themselves like that. That like you you talk about schism. Like if you really think you can't have conversations with other Catholics. I don't know what you're doing. Like, I don't know, man. This is, we're supposed to be talking to each other. We're so like, we're all confused right now. Anybody who thinks they know exactly what's going on and they have all the answers. I'm telling you that's their, I mean, I try to say as often as possible, like I am very confused about what's going on. I don't know. I try not to ever make pronouncements on anything. I'm just trying to have conversations with people who I know love love the church and love God and they're yeah. doing their best to make sense of it as well right now. Well, like yeah. we got a, a comment on our video, our last video with uh, Patrick Coffin today, you know, like, mm. Oh, he's a set of a conscious. Why would you have him on? And Anthony yeah. responded with, cause he's my friend. 
You right. know, like, my friend. Like, I mean, I, look, I have empathy for people who think Francis is an antipode. Like, I'm not, that's not my position, but I have, I understand it. Like, I yeah. understand why people think that. I'm not like to sit there and just say this person's crazy. And they're not crazy. They're confused. We're all confused. None of us really know. So I don't know, man. I, I, yeah. I, I, I think we got to be careful not to, not to, uh, get, not to cut people off that don't agree with every single opinion we have. Yeah. Yeah. We have to be in dialogue with, with those who disagree with us. I mean, that's, that's what it means to be missionaries. That's, that's what Christ commissioned us to do as a church. And if we're not doing that, then we're, uh, we're going to, we're going to atrophy. Right. And, and that's, that's not a way forward. <laughs> Peter Diamond. <laughs> uh, what, what are you doing with your, uh, I, I know you were, you're doing something with Catholic businesses up by you, right? Yeah. What's yeah, it's not just it's not just where I'm. It's it's like our 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 main uh, focal point, like our target market, so to speak, is is in the states because uh, that's just where you know the majority of of English speaking Catholics are. So, um, so what it is? It's called the Fishers Network, and the idea is to try and form groups of of uh, leaders in their professions uh, around parishes. So to be forming networking communities from amongst themselves to get to know each other to do whatever they can to mentor each other, help each other um, spread business around to one another. I mean, we've all seen this done in, in other ethnic communities, right? Like people always talk about Jewish communities being really good at this, right? Like um, trading business and and helping each other out financially and whatever else, right? We as Catholics don't do this at all. And there's no reason why we shouldn't be, especially when we consider uh, the corporal works of mercy, right? Like um, during COVID, I saw so many people losing their jobs, losing their businesses. And it's like, you'd see the yeah. odd person. And I did this like handing envelopes uh, of cash to people just being like, Hey, I hope this helps your family out. Right. But it's like, if we were a little bit more mobilized in those efforts, there's just so much more we could be doing to helping each other and to, to um, so, like preventing those kinds of consequences from like affecting people in your community so much. Right. Um, having sort of a collective voice, so to speak. Right. That was something that after the the Industrial Revolution and after the various revolu- European revolutions, the popes in their social justice encyclicals were calling for associations of workers. And we never really did that. We never like we kind of we had trade unions happen, but they weren't speaking collectively with a Catholic voice. No, and yeah, certainly they become more Marxist as time goes on. Right. And so what's, what's the ca- Catholic collective voice. And so we're trying to do that with like leaders, like business leaders, um, executives, uh, leaders in academia, business owners, that kind of thing. And then hoping that as we build up that network, that they're going to be able to do more to help, help other workers in their community. And, Ca- and uh, kind of like the old, guild system exactly kind of yeah it's the exact same kind of idea because that's what was abolished during the revolutions right yeah we got we lost the guilds and the, and the popes were like we need something guys and we didn't really do anything to replace that so vicious yeah, network a, is one kind of attempt to do that it's like a parallel economy on top of that but it's also what you're talking like you have to think yeah. when the next pandemic comes and it doesn't have to be a, a, a pandemic like last time it could be right. anything Whatever yep. they throw at us next, right? Yep. So, and they're going to throw like that. It felt like that whole thing was a test run for something they're going to do in the future. And really, your your local parish and the people that you have around you are going to be the most important thing. Like you think about totally. during during the pandemic, um, I would have gone insane if I had to stay trapped in my house. Luckily, I had all my siblings and I had family members who were willing to break the rules 
yeah. to see each other, right? Otherwise, I would have been trapped in my house all by myself for a freaking year and a half. And it's like, you have to have networks of people that you can actually yeah. live with, you know? So I, I, I really think that's a great idea. How can people find that? Fishersnetwork.com. That's the place to go. Yeah. Is there anything else you got to promote? No, no, that's that's all I'm working on. We got dude, I read questions. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so yeah. Oh, we got questions. Yeah, bring them up. The first one uh is someone wants a good book recommendation about Pius the Ninth, um, Italian unification, that sort of era. That's a good question. Um I don't. Do you guys have any book recommendations? I don't know. I can't think of a book so, per se. So much of um, of that topic really comes at it more from the the modern liberal side, and not really a good Catholic angle, unfortunately. Yeah, that's a you're, that's a good point. It's a, it's a really hidden history. I, I talked about like I, again, I don't have a book recommendation, but I talked a bit about that in one of my recent videos because. Pius IX was elected to be something like what Pope Francis has become for so many voices, right? He was this moderate, um, kind of liberal in that in the in the sense that it would have really um, what what that word would have meant in his era, um, who was sort of sympathetic and collegial uh, towards all the revolutionaries, and this is the time of like the the the, the mid the mid nineteenth century revolutions, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. And so he he released revolutionaries from prisons in, in the papal states and, and was promoting their cause everywhere. And as soon as they got out, they stabbed him in the back and invaded the papal states, right? Yep. And so he he goes from like this sort of like liberalizing voice to this this super combative rad trad who writes something like the syllabus of errors, which like yeah. <laughs> even some trads will read that and they'll blush today, right? Because it's like, oh boy, right? Um so he learned his lesson, right? That this sort of like conciliatory approach you Doesn't give, work. it's just like how we do personally with sin, right? It's like you liberalize your lifestyle towards sin and it will tear you down mm -hmm. into the trenches of despair. You can't play with sin. You can't be diplomatic yeah. with sin. You have to, you have to destroy it. You have to kill it dead. And to do that with the evils of the world, the church just, it can't do that without suffering dire consequences. And I think we've been seeing that. We've been learning that lesson over and over. We shouldn't, you know, and, going yeah, back to the 19th no, century, we're not we shouldn't learning still be learning lesson. It. We're witnessing it happen, but we're not yeah. learning the lesson. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah true. That's right. Second question is, what is your favorite guitar right now? And what do you like to play on guitar? Yeah, so uh, my favorite my favorite electric guitar has always been Gibson's. I played a variety of different guitars, but Gibson Les Paul is always, I've always thought that that's just the coolest looking guitar. Although I... They're not the easiest to play of the different kinds of guitars I've played. Um, but sadly, uh, my guitars just are all in their cases in, in my storage room, kind of gathering dust. I do have, just to prove that I'm not lying here, I do have an acoustic here just in, in my bedroom that every now and then I'll get out and play some Johnny Cash tunes and do some sing-alongs with my kids and stuff. But, um, <laughs> so but that's about I, it. Yeah, It's so funny. So we both grew up in the 90s. Like right, let's those are your formative years in the nineties. Yep. I played the guitar. I was in a band with my friends. It's like that era, man. People, it's we're the first millennials. So really, I think yeah. I think Gen X ends at 81 and then 82 yeah. starts the millennials. So yeah. we still got a taste of that going. Like my first cell phone was my senior year, and it was like a Nextel. 
like with the, yeah. with the radio, the point to point radio with the Nextel. And so we, we really are the first of those where I think Rob, you had probably uh, a cell phone through high school and stuff, right? Like we had beepers. Did you have a beeper, Brian? No, I never did. No, I was, I was a latecomer to like mobile technology. We had a beeper and it would be like my, I'm sorry, Rob, but my, my, my wife, who was my girlfriend, like I've been dating, I've been with my wife since we're 15, but we would, we would beep each other messages and numbers and you would know it that like one, four, three, man, I love you and stuff. It's just such a weird time back then. Right. Yeah. Yeah, only only players had beepers, from what I remember. Ah, or players are, or like doctors. Anthony had one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, you must man. have been smooth, man. Uh, was there any other questions, Rob? Well, um, why don't you tell Brian how smooth you were? Uh, how did you get your uh, wife interested in you? So <laughs> we're in like eighth grade, and my wife had like I love Anthony a body in her yearbook. And I see it in written in her yearbook, and I'm like, "You're gonna be so hot when you get those braces off. As soon as you get those off, that's cool day." <laughs> that's awesome that you off. guys knew each other for that long. That's that's yeah, we, that's really beautiful. We started dating at 15. I got a candle at her sweet 16. Um, yeah, it's uh, me and my wife have been best friends forever, man. I've been with her longer than that's I haven't. Cool. So hmm. now, now my son is older than I was when I started dating my wife. It's crazy when you think how fast time goes, man. Right. Yeah. Oh, skiing or snowboarding? I well, so as a child of the '90s, I was I was big <laughs> into skateboarding, and uh, that automatically translated into snowboarding. Uh, you do it with your kids? Uh, so my kids, yeah, we do. So we live pretty close to the Rocky Mountains. Like by close, I mean like four hours. Um, so we can get to some pretty amazing uh, ski hills. And uh, for them, they're doing skiing though, because skiing just it's makes just way easy more to sense. teach. It's easier it's, to yeah, teach. it's way easier to learn. So snowboarding, I always say this to people, snowboarding is really hard to be a beginner at, but once you get over that initial hurdle, then it's really easy to get good at. But yeah. the first little while, like you're going to have broken, like I had a broken tailbone, like when I first was learning to snowboard, your wrists, you're constantly going to be falling on your wrists, you're going to be catching edges and going over forwards. So, like it's broke, really yeah. dangerous. I broke my collarbone. I broke my thumb just from falling those first couple of times I went. Yeah. So I got... My my older kids, it took me like three seasons to finally get them going on a snowboard. My youngest, I'm like, you're going on skis. I'm not doing this again. I taught her the pizza slice. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, let's go. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So all my but, kids are skiing for that reason. Yeah. And I, I think I might even I might even go back to skiing. I haven't done it since I was like 13, but I, I think I might go back to it. I'm still snowboarding, man. We'll go to New Hampshire in two weeks. I can't wait. So yeah, it's a, it's yeah. expensive. That's the problem, man. It's yeah, so it's expensive insane. to go skiing. It's, it's crazy. crazy. But yeah. Brian, dude, I'm so grateful you came on with us, man. This is such a fun conversation. Yeah, 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 me too. Thanks, Anthony and Rob. It's it's been a lot of fun. You should do preaching, man. I'm telling you, you got my heart lit up while you were talking before. (laughs) You have you have you done a lot of public speaking at like conferences and stuff? No, no. Um, I part of the challenge for me is that like I'm so remote from geographically from where a lot of the conferences would be. Like Mm. for me to go anywhere down in the states, I have to first fly to Toronto, which is like a good four or five hour flight east, and then head south. And so it's uh, it's 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 very discouraging for anybody who wants to try to book me because it's it takes like extra days of travel and cost and expense and everything. And so, and I've been reluctant to do it for that reason too because it's just it's it's pretty difficult to be away. Big Canada is it's just humongous Canada. It is yeah. But very scarcely populated. Most Canadians 
live below like so if you think of um the parallel of like the, the u.s border um that, like that's under, right like, where i'm at in minnesota okay yeah so like so north of minnesota that parallel border and then canada like around the great lakes it kind of dips down most canadians live below that u.s border line um so we have this vast like geographical line. it's like russia right like all of siberia which is just like empty, nobody empty. lives there right yeah so what's the what's the weather now like are, are you buried under snow or so this year has been really weird normally yeah we would have so i live in kind of like a desert climate just west of the rocky mount or sorry just east of the rocky mountains um but nonetheless we still do get a, a reasonable amount of snow just because it's so cold so when it snows here it doesn't melt at all it just keeps accumulating over yeah. the winter mm. and normally by by november 1st we'll get like our first big snowfall and then it will it'll be there till like april we'll start to get a melt right but yeah. for some reason this year was like our first brown christmas in a really really long time but so then weird. as soon as as soon as like january came in we had like an insane cold snap a couple of weeks ago um, that we're just kind of coming out of now where it was like so i think fahrenheit and celsius they intersected about like minus 30 um, and we were like down to minus 40 minus 50 celsius i've never seen the that same cold. thing he's yeah. he'll send me like pictures of his thermometer in his car and it's like negative 30 like, yeah i'm on my way to work in the morning <laughs> yeah yeah i mean if rob, if rob lives close to minnesota it's pretty similar to, to what's yeah. out there yeah you guys are sick oh man brian <laughs> thank you so much dude it's uh this is this was really fun i'm i'm the, one of the coolest things about doing this show is just the different people we've been getting to talk to and just have conversations with i'm i'm really glad we were able to put because you don't answer email you don't answer anything so <laughs> just even get in touch with you was tricky for a while there i'm really glad we got to put this together man well i appreciate the persistence because yeah i am bad at email and and so i hope people don't take offense by that but it's just i i get overwhelmed by my inbox all right, man. I'm, glad, we'll I'm, I'm glad to have done it. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, down the road, we'll give you a few months off, and then we'll come and bug you again in a few months. Sounds good. This is All very right, fun, man. Nice. We'll talk soon. Um, okay. we're gonna be. Oh, we have. Oh, so Thursday we have, uh, faith and film. So we've been doing the last Thursday of the month. We do. Uh, we pick a Catholic film or a religious film, and we kind of just take some of the themes in the film and discuss like how it relates to us and our faith and things like that. We're doing the Island on Thursday. So for everybody that wants to watch that episode, try to watch the Island There's a free episode of it. There's a free version of it on YouTube and we will see you guys Thursday night. Have a good night, everyone.